happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 138 for the 12th of June, 2019. I am co-host Jason Neifer that's located in Missoula, Montana, where I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus. And joining me, as always... Good evening, Dr. Westfryer. Good evening, Jason. It is good to be back with you and looking forward to another in, uh, another evening of conversation and talking about the very interesting world of technology, which I, I, I may have to drop some links in, but there were some interesting uh, things happening on Capitol Hill today with regard to yeah, uh, not just the DOJ, but oh my gosh, yeah, that, anyway, it's, it's interesting, an interesting week. So I am for 17 more days, the director of technology at the Cassidy School, after which I will be shifting gears for the next academic year, officially, uh, be- becoming our technology integration and innovation specialist. So that is going to begin with some summer vacation, which I am very much looking forward to. So it's a good way to start a new job, taking off a month. So <laughs> that's what well, I will say. That's the one thing I miss the most going into a, a year long administrative position is that I do miss summer break. And I didn't really miss summer break when I was a teacher and partly because I would fill the summer full of projects and activities uh, underneath. I think the notion, I kid myself into thinking I didn't need a break, but then that was my break, right? Like I'd shift focus, I would do projects I wouldn't otherwise have time to, and I kind of missed that that creative time in, in my life. Um, but, you know, sometimes trade-offs are necessary and trade-offs occur. So enough about me. Wes, what is this thing about? Well, this is our weekly opportunity to take a look at some recent tech news and analyze it through an educational lens. And we encourage everyone, if you have not already, to check out the show notes located at edtechsr.com slash links. And please join us live in the chat room. Uh, last week we had, I think, both Peggy George and Scott Summer there. And uh, there were, I think a couple weeks ago, when we had problems anyway, there, there has been a week where Peggy was by herself because I wasn't even, you know, I don't, I don't weren't, weren't there in the chat room. So we'll try not to leave anybody alone uh, in the chat room. But if you are there, uh, that'll be great. And we'll try to give voice to your comments and questions. And if there are, are any topics in particular that you'd like us to discuss, we are generally not able to get to everything. So we are certainly open to suggestions. And on that note, Dr. Neifer, where shall we begin tonight's conversation? Nope. Oh, I think he's frozen up. I wonder if that's me because I did not prioritize my... Jason has a very distinguished looking pose. And one of the things I'm going to keep talking because I actually don't know if I am by myself. Um, I've been using the Google Wi-Fi <clears throat> since we updated our network. And I neglected to do this. I actually think... This may be an issue with Jason's connection, um, but I am going to prioritize my traffic. And so <clears throat> this is a next generation mesh Wi-Fi system. And one of the things that means you can do is go in and say that you'd like to prioritize a device. So I just have to find the name of my computer in here and I can voila, say that I'm going to prioritize it for an hour or two hours and save 
Ta-da. But I don't think that explains Jason's disappearance and reappearance. So are, are you back with microphone uh, functioning? Oh, I'm not uh, not hearing the audio there. So the other instance of you. See, I jinxed us before the show because I told Jason everything seemed to work beautifully last week. We've been having some difficulties with the actual Google Hangout launching, which I didn't know if it had something to do with branded account changes. Yep, still not hearing you. Um, and so anyway, we have been having some difficulty. And last week was wonderful because... Uh, Dave Quinn was with us. Everything launched great. There were no glitches. We actually had to jump into a Zoom Zoom room uh, and uh, get connected. But now I'm still not hearing audio. So waiting for people to join the video call. All right. Well, let's see. Perhaps I should begin by talking about uh, a topic. I will I will cover here while uh, Jason is getting hopefully reconnected um, under the security sometimes. And this is a function for me of having been a director of technology. Now for the past four years, I have been much more oriented towards security topics than I have been in the past. And so sometimes this will some, you know, feel perhaps a little bit to listeners, like it's the, uh, the security and safety show. Um, but there was an article in fortune magazine on June 4th, 2019, called hackers can now bypass two-factor authentication with a new kind of phishing scam. And we are regularly uh, talking with our staff at school about safety and security. Uh, phishing with a PH is now, you know, just absolutely rampant. And so um, this is a warning that is basically saying, oops, play that audio. Um, the two, the two-factor authentication is not you know, a panacea for um, preventing hacking attacks. And so there was a video presentation showing that um, hackers are using stronger tools to work in tandem to automate attacks. And um, anyway, this was this was a proof of concept, which is basically saying, you know, two-factor is not going to be a complete protection. Wow. We are hearing audio now, but I'm not not seeing your video. So. Yeah, if for some reason it's not finding my camera, so I guess you'll have to talk to the uh, emanating circle that Hangouts on Air utilizes. So, uh, no idea what happened there, but sometimes tech fails and you have to continue to move on. So, um, you were talking security right now, sir. I was. I went ahead and started to pick up... Uh, there, we actually didn't talk much security in last week's show, so I picked up the uh, Fortune article that was about hackers you know, bypassing two-factor with this new new kind of phishing scam. Um, you know, I think we, what I'll say about this is we need to be aware of, of articles that are talking about identified vulnerabilities and, you know, theoretical vulnerabilities. Um, that is certainly different than when we see something rampant in the wild, like the WannaCry virus that infected so many computers and servers and, you know, actually brought, uh, networks down. Um, but, you know, this doesn't change the advice, I think. Uh, for for teachers and and faculty that two factor authentication wherever you can turn it on is still a good idea if you want to be really secure uh you know sms or text message authentication is really not the best method 
you would be better off to follow the example of Google and go with a physical uh, USB key, like a YubiKey or something like that. But, you know, that means that if you don't have that actual key, you are going to be up, up a creek. So um, we actually re- encourage our faculty to use multiple means of two-factor authentication, which are generally always tied to their phone. If not SMS, now Google has the open up the Gmail app or the Google app to be able to authenticate. Um, you can have backup codes. You can provide... It's, I think, generally best not to use the email um, option because you can, you know, choose uh, in some cases to use email authentication. But anyway, that was one of the security articles for this, actually for two weeks ago, but we just didn't talk about that one last week. I'll pick up one more there that follows it, and this is Ars Technica from June 3rd, and I love this. Microsoft says mandatory password changing is, quote, ancient and obsolete. And so it's nice to hear Microsoft saying that. We've heard a lot of other security researchers talk about that. Uh, We have stopped, you know, trying to push regular password changes. I know when I was at Texas Tech from, uh, I think, 1999, 2000 to 2006, you know, it would be a regular kind of thing that everyone was going to have to to change their passwords. And, and we've got some different systems. Apple ID is one of them that doesn't let you repeat your passwords. And so that can become challenging. Um, but, you know, using a unique and long password and also pairing that with the two factor is really your best bet. So uh, how do you all handle password policies at the Montana Digital Academy? And has that changed at all in the last few years, Jason? We're adding two-factor authentication into our, our, our strategy and we encourage regular password, password changes, but we don't, um, aggressively enforce that. And part of the reason why, I mean, I personally change major passwords every 90 days or so. I feel like there's so much student data under my accounts that using good secure passwords, two-factor authentication and changing them regularly is, is pretty important. I also use a password manager as well to help me use even more secure passwords, but I would very much agree with the notion that forced password changes are generally a mistake. And I I have my own experience here, and this is from 20 years ago, but when I was first teaching, um, I was a pretty tech-savvy young teacher in a building that had just rolled out computers uh, in every classroom. And the notion of uh, secure passwords befuddled uh, a lot of teachers that weren't ready for that as a daily reality. And I taught them some strategies. Uh, one of my favorite early ones was putting um, your the address you grew up in in uh, like brackets or parentheses, which if you are using the um, the abbreviations that a post office might use is actually a pretty secure password, which was really great until 90 days later, the password was forced to be changed. And a lot of people didn't want to memorize a new password like that. And so went to less secure passwords. So, um, I, I'm so, so tickled that Microsoft, I've seen this to be leading the way on, on, on laptop security in particular, but Microsoft and Google and Apple are all working on ways to, uh, allow you to, to, authenticate without the password. Uh, biometrics, I think, and biometric passwords, I think, are definitely on the way. But I'm personally looking forward to that in that, you know, I use really good password uh, uh, hygiene. I, I'm, I'm very good about that process, but it takes a lot of doing to do that. And I just don't think it's very realistic for the majority of typical users that we serve in context of educational environments. Absolutely. 
Where would you like to go next? I think you were wanting to talk a little Apple news after the fact. So do you want to go there? I was so sad, Wes, that I was not uh, able to to hop in last week. And I almost, I was literally in a car driving from Portland, Oregon to Salem, Oregon. I had a family event last week as my niece graduated from high school. And I almost hopped in just because I wanted to talk about this with you so badly. So I watched most of the presentation live last week, and I have to say kudos to Apple because they admitted a mistake and they moved on from it. And I think it's extremely great news that they are releasing a upgradable Mac Pro that uh, is an evolved version of the old cheese grater Mac, as it's called, which is the last personal Mac I owned was a, uh, and I retired it two years ago, it was a, a 2008 um, Mac Pro that, that served me very well and faithfully for, for nine years, and I slowly and surely upgraded RAM and put SSD drives in it, and it went out on top. It was by metric faster than the Windows PC that replaced it, and... Really? Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. It by And I was so shocked by that, but not really because of the great hardware in that. Um, that said... Um, I'm not totally thrilled with the you know five thousand dollar entry price. Um, that is a scary prospect. Um, I, I loved the internet's response to their thousand dollar monitor stand. That uh, is is obviously um, uh, a bizarre choice on the part of Apple because at that point there's just no way that that can physically cost them. Um, even with an impressive markup, you know, four, five, six hundred dollars to create, that has to be a much cheaper item than that. That's the most Apple-y Apple thing I, I think I've seen um, ever, ever, ever. But I'm really excited that they are really once again embracing professionals because I think that's part. I, I feel as if that's part of what has led them astray in the last few years is that that the when the high-end producers stopped using Apple products I feel like that they then counterbalance too much to the, the the most average of average consumers and I think that takes away from Apple's cachet as a brand I think it takes away from their their ability to innovate in those markets and the much maligned trash can Mac Pro um, wasn't their best work, and they refused to admit it for a long, 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 long time. So that's that's super great. So Wes, I have a question for you. Um, you are, uh, I th I think, one of the foremost experts about iPads in education. Talk a little bit about the prospect of an iPad-specific operating system, and what you think that means for the the iPad platform. Well, of course, this is the developer conference, and. Um for developers, I I think it's I think it's good number one to see Apple uh, the accessibility features by far. I mentioned this in the show last time. That's that was the most exciting and impressive thing. Stop the dog fight that's happening here in my dining room. Sorry, um, th that was the most impressive thing that um, I saw in terms of just a wow function and and just wanting to show that to my wife and my daughters like. Oh my gosh! Look at look at this as far as voice control. Um, the addition of the of the mouse, I think, is uh, is good, and it's interesting to see. You know, Apple just continue to not surprisingly, I guess, stick to their guns um, about wanting us to have have this additional device that has this this additional function. 
Um, I still don't see the iPad as a complete laptop replacement. I know last week in the show, Dave Quinn is in a school district that has uh, fully implemented iPads as their one-to-one solution. He talked about the keyboards that they use, which are not Bluetooth. They actually plug into the, the physical device. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. Um, oh gosh, this is, I, I watched since I hadn't before last week's show, but, but in the ensuing days, I have basically watched all, but I think a lot, the last 10 minutes of the entire keynote, which is about two hours, something maybe more, more long. And I watch it usually on Apple TV on the Apple events app. This is huge. Desktop Safari is, is coming to the, the, uh, iPad OS. And that means that Google Docs is going to, according to oh. this really quick little blurb there, fully function on the iPad. So, like right now, um, I've I've got this iPad Pro and and I've got the Google Docs app open. And but when I want and I can see live editing, but when I want to edit, you know, I have to tap on it and actually click the the edit button. So there's a chance that we might step on each other in right. terms of you know our edits because it's just not like that browser experience. So I think that was really important and exciting. We haven't mentioned, I don't think, in the show. Maybe we did two weeks ago. That Google, I think, has been has made a really big misstep. It's not completely from left field, given their their uh, economic model. But they have announced that in the next version of desktop Chrome, uh, you will not be able to use ad blockers like uBlock Origin unless you are a G Suite organization. So the consumer, you know level accounts are not going to be able to use that. Um, ben Wilkoff, who we've had on the show and is an amazing educational technology guru out in the Denver, Colorado area, uh, tweeted recently, and I went back and forth. He's convinced that Safari on the Mac platform comparing Safari, Chrome, and Firefox is definitely the fastest browser out there. It's just been made, you know, lightning fast that Chrome is becoming, in his words, really bloatware. Uh, I think that's a little bit extreme, but it's becoming uh, much more kludgy and it's just not as fast and responsive. And Firefox, you know, has been iterating as well. So I think the web browser market is very robust. I'm exceptionally excited to think of a full-blown desktop Safari coming to the iPad. And I think for those of us that are in Google schools, that is extremely good news. Good news for collaboration, good news for feature sets, and actually good news for the open web because that's, you know, been one of the things uh, we've talked about that you know, has happened over time since we, you know, thought of like the netbooks and the OLPC and different, you know, laptops. Uh, I don't know if that was even maybe 10 years ago uh, coming into schools is the web had just not matured to the point that it did. So it's exciting that Apple is continuing to invest in Safari. It's performing so well, and then it will be uh, more fully featured. So Jason does the advent of iPad OS uh, can, you know, make you want to completely ditch your Chromebook loving ways and, you know, just go full on iPad? It, it's an interesting question because I do think the iPad has suddenly become more competitive as a device because of the desktop browser. Now, I have to say, um, if mobile Safari that's actually desktop Safari is anything like Safari itself, I'm probably not a convert because, to be quite frank, I've never fancied 
a Safari as a browser. It, it's always felt uh, a couple steps short of both Firefox and Chrome for me. But I do think it's it is super interesting of that as a uh, you know not a workhorse device per se, but the one that you're checking email and, and and engaging in productive activities in a coffee shop or on a bus or on an airplane or any of those pieces. And I do think I mean the iPad the iPad has come down substantially in price the last two years, where the uh, in and we're even talking about the starting models the ones that, you know, have 64 gigs, 128 gigs of RAM, you can get into a decent iPad for at the $500 mark, which the last iPad I bought, which was an iPad mini two that, that I purchased out of my pocket was in the seven or eight hundred dollar range to get 128 gigabytes. This was four years ago, I think. Right. Um, and I like it, it was a good device. It was worth it for me, but that's a stiff, you know, out-of-pocket expense for what is effectively a third device in my life. Um, but the notion of the 10.5-inch or even the 12-inch Pro iPad taking on a, a more productive, uh, uh, I, I guess, presentation to users, I think is ex- extra- extraordinarily interesting. And I just priced these again for some faculty today. And uh, we're basically looking at just under $550. That is for the 128-gig Wi-Fi-only iPad uh, 6th Gen, so not the Pro, but it has the Apple Pencil support. And for our faculty now, um, I am, I'm recommending absolutely the Apple Pencil. So that's an additional education, $89.00. And then I think the case that we're looking at is only like 14 bucks. Um, and it's very similar actually to this case. So it's a, uh, you know, flip it on, uh, right. you know, iPad goes on and off. And then you've got a nice little tray right here. Um, with the Pro, actually this one I bought before they, they had other alternatives. <clears throat> the second generation Apple Pencil snaps onto the side and I, I don't have a, I have to take it out of the case to actually charge it. Uh, with the first generation Pencil, you know, the, the end pops off and you, you plug it into the, uh, the lightning adapter or whatever. Thunderbolt. Is it Thunderbolt or lightning? I don't know. Whatever. It's both, I guess. Um, but anyway, that, um, I, I agree. I think it's just exceptional. Um, the, and the return on investment, you know, this is the thing. What do you want to do and how long are you going to keep these devices? Um, so it's, it's, it's really going to be interesting at our school because we're going to have, I think, a lot of conversations this next year about one-to-one, not only at our middle school, but I hope also, you know, at our high school and in our, uh, our lower division or elementary grades. So good to see Apple making these investments. Great to see them investing at the, at the pro level. Uh, pretty silly when you look at that pricing. Um, but I think they've gotten that way on their smartphones as well. You know, I just yeah. just don't want to pay $1,000 for a device. But I will say that I'm very happy, you know, with my iPhone 7 at this point. Um, trying to think if iOS 13 really had anything that just, you know, super grabbed me as far as features. Oh, I am glad on a digital citizenship note that the screen time monitoring is going to come to the Mac OS as well as to... Um, the, uh, you know, iPad OS, it's already there for, for, for iOS devices. So anyway, being able to monitor your screen time, being able to, um, you know, take, you know, take a look and, and see if, if that seems to be exceeding a quota that you want to set for yourself. Uh, we had that conversation the other day in the car now that summer has started, you know, for our uh, daughter that's almost 16. And the question was, you know, how much screen time do you think is too much for a day? And, I think basically her answer was there should be no limits. <laughs> and so I think there probably should be, and we probably need to have that for adults as well. 
Um, was there anything else from the Apple announcements that really stood out for you? Yeah, I've seen a lot of interesting media uh, uh, after the fact on this. It seems like something that, that didn't make a lot of the headlines because of the hardware announcements. Actually, I want to make one other quick hardware notion. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, you know, let's say you configure a, a new Mac Pro, assuming you use uh, the hardware enough to justify the expense. You know, Apple hardware does tend to last a little longer, I think, than other hardware. Uh, the operating system is updated. Uh, it's a little more long-lasting. And, in fact, every uh, Apple piece of hardware I've owned has exceeded um, what I consider to be its lifetime. But, you know, at six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000, that's an extraordinary expense. But remember, you know, we are regularly paying thirty or $35,000 for a car, that uh, you probably would use a lot less than a Mac Pro, especially if you are in a, a, an industry or business where you're spending a lot of time on the computer. And so I am not a candidate for a new Mac Pro. I uh, strongly consider buying a trash can Mac when they, they first were released to replace my 2008 Mac Pro. And the super bottom line was I could never really justify the expense that was along with it. So... So going that, the other thing that I think was announced that, that, that's really super interesting that relates to another topic we can segue into is the notion of the sign-in with Apple protocol. And um, that, uh, you know, they, they talked about it. They certainly highlighted what the big differential is between that product and signing in with Facebook or Google. But I think it's been a little ignored considering the extraordinary debate going on right now about privacy and, and, and your data. Um, because the big differentiator between signing in with Facebook and signing in with Google and signing in with Apple is that Apple promises that it's only tried to authenticate on your behalf to give you uh, your credentials into a website, right, and provide just enough information for people to know who you are. It is not tracking you after the fact. And there's a really great article from Time Magazine on June 1st that goes into some detail about the, this, this being a radical notion. But Apple seems to be not just doubling down, they're quadrupling down on the notion of they are the privacy company and that they are you know, hell-bent on, on guarding your data uh, within the larger Apple ecosystem. And they're not going to poke walls in their system in order to let out site actors in that could be um, a little nasty. And to be really honest, I don't really use my Apple account. I have uh, really one device left that I use regularly, which is my old iMac at work, which is five, six years old now. Uh, it's about to be relegated into kind of emeritus status uh, for me at work, and so it's going to end up um, on a shared desk uh, with a big monitor that uh, uh, it can uh, utilize um uh, be utilized by others working in our office, but the bottom line is is that I don't really use my Apple account all that much, but this might make me change my mind. I love the convenience of single sign-on, whether it's from Facebook or Google, but I think I, I knew it, but I hadn't thought a lot about the privacy issues there, but there are some, most definitely. We certainly need to help raise awareness of what it means when you click, you know, sign in with such and such service, when you allow folks to have access to all of your contacts. And um, as, I guess, consumer advocates, you know, we need to support groups like EFF and others pushing for privacy and then pushing for companies uh, and, and third parties to not abuse, you know, consumers because, there are a number of things, and, and Cambridge Analytica is one that comes to mind, 
um, that, you know, took your permissions and then went so far in terms of the contacts that they scraped and the information that they, they took and what they did with that data. So I'm also, you know, interested and intrigued with what Apple is going to do in this space. I think the better advice today for folks, rather than signing on with something else, um, well, okay, I'll, let me back up. I think signing on with Google, I mean, this is what we try to do as a school is Google is our credential, and so we want to do a single sign-on there uh, with whatever we can. But when it comes to other kinds of websites, um, you know, I, I think the best policy is to have a password manager. Use something like LastPass that has an extension. That is, by the way, one of the things that I, I hope that Apple will provide with Safari I've dabbled just a little bit. I'm still, you know, sticking with my Chrome browser at this point. Um, but, but the extension for LastPass is pretty phenomenal as far as being able to readily generate a random uh, password for a website that you're visiting and registering for, being able to recall that and pull that up and make the process just pretty seamless as long as you can remember your, your master password. So really interesting moves here. Um, you know, at Apple's previous event, uh, they had announced that Apple credit card that's not actually going to have a number printed on it. Um, really interested in what they're doing there. And we're continuing to see, you know, Apple try and pivot to a services basis for income. And that that's a tough pivot for a company that, you know, earns the, the lion's share of their money, actually not even from full-on laptop or desktop uh, computers anymore, but from iPhones and from smartphones um, so it'll be interesting to to see how these things go. I think they're going to continue to you know test the waters and, and see what they can do. But they certainly have a huge user base in iPhone users, and you know they're going to continue to monetize that in some different ways. And hopefully, it's going to bring us greater levels of security because we certainly need that. And um, you know, as an iPhone user, I'm glad to see them continuing that that kind of emphasis. Absolutely. And then one last quick Apple article. Uh, this is from Engadget uh, talking about the $1,000 monitor stand. And um, it, it, it tends to be on the more, more, more of the, the critical uh, Apple or critical of Apple side of this debate uh, that it kind of symbolizes the $1,000 monitor stand that um, is maybe has a lot of tricks but not a lot of core functionality, uh, kind of symbolizes what Apple's become in 2019. I agree that the monitor stand for $1,000 is quite ridiculous, but I will say that I think Apple did itself more good than harm last week in its announcements. And so I hope this is a, a sign of things to come from our friends at uh, uh, Apple Corp. So, okay, where to next, sir? You know, I actually would like to go back to an article we did last week that you weren't here to talk about, but uh, it's tied to the tech correction. Then maybe we can get into some of those articles and, and things that were going on at Capitol Hill today with respect to possible you know, regulations. Um, last week, Dave Quinn and I talked about this Ars Technica article from uh, June 5th, YouTube bans neo-Nazi and Holocaust denial videos in a push against hate speech. And so this is a really, you know, big deal. Uh, we've seen the platforms, you know, Facebook and YouTube included, try to really abdicate a, a role in uh, censoring content, in being the decider of whether, you know, content is uh, offensive, whether it's hate speech, etc. You know, many, many different events to include the the relatively recent, you know, shootings in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, highlighted some really, you know, huge issues with regard to the platform's responsibilities to try to prevent, uh, 
you know, content, you know, terrorist content, um, violent content, things like that. Um, so, Jason, any any responses there? And uh, is this a I told you so in terms of you saw this coming or what are your, what are your thoughts about uh, YouTube's pivot on this? Well, I, it, it still goes back to drawing lines, right? Like, I, I think that I, I do not um, – I'm not sad to hear that hate speech has, has, has been dialed down a notch on the world's most popular media platform. I think that, that less of that content is available for distribution, probably the better off we all are, but I guess there's two pieces that are concerning to me. The first is where do we draw a line between what's appropriate content and what's inappropriate content, and unfortunately, our older standards, uh, the, the classic Supreme Court uh, debate about, about pornography, like what constitutes pornography and the, you know, I know it when I see it standard, um, which has been a, a part of the debate for a long, long time now, doesn't really apply, I think, to some of these categorical eliminations of content that's happening in a lot of these media platforms. And uh, while I may not like the politics of the folks that are pushing that information out, and while there may be a real threat from it, you know, uh, making sure that, uh, uh, well, I'll just say it, crackpots can say what they want means that the New York Times and the Washington Post and the, um, the uh, MP NPR and ABC and NBC and, 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 and even uh, uh, more partisan news like Fox News and, 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 and MSNBC, they can say what they want. And I, I, the First Amendment advocate in me, the civil libertarian in me, uh, I, doesn't know where this ends. And in fact, that's the complicated part of this debate. And, and we'll talk about this in a moment when we talk about this week's developments, but the kind of grandstanding that's going on right now in Washington, D.C., that's part of the political debate about this kind of points out why this is problematic, right? Like if, if we are trying to meaningfully add in protections to our election system, and then you have one side or the other proclaiming that they're being muffled and their free speech is being impacted, it really gets uh, difficult to, I think, to draw some very real lines. So I, I, I applaud the effort on the part of social media platforms to figure out a way to try to, to start to self-regulate this, but I still don't know if there's a way to do this that doesn't end up trampling on someone's rights. I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago on the show, and this was a, a podcast which um, – was with a law professor. I'm not going to be able to pull up uh, the name right now, <clears throat> but he was, it was on, on reason. So I can go back in the tweets and perhaps find it and put it in the show notes. Um, and it was talking about regulation and regulating Facebook. And I think this, this guy's opinion was basically that they should be regulated and reined in. But he was pointing out that, you know, DMCA, the Digital Millennium Rights Act and the regulation that has allowed platforms to not be responsible basically for user content and to be able to say, Hey, you know, we, we just host the content. We're not the ones, uh, you know, monitoring and regulating it. Uh, that was regulation. I mean, regulation in, in that way really empowered the platforms to be able to uh, become what they have become. And I think that podcast also really, you know, caused me to think a lot about how different the web was before the virality of social media. You know, blogs are a form of social media and Web 2.0, but you don't see uh, things, that, certainly the shallowness of, of thought, of thinking and sharing that happens today with so many headlines uh, with Facebook and with Twitter and um 
you know, it was a different day with blogging in terms of just the time that it took to write a post and to put it on your own site and people to read and everything like that. So velocity has definitely increased. But I guess my point is that regulation really did enable the platforms to become what they've become today. Um, and so maybe we can go into that a little bit. And I'll, I, I think I've got an article here to, to drop in to talk a little bit about what was happening on Capitol Hill now, because I definitely am with you as far as a fear of a slippery slope, you know. And so, great, here comes the regulators. You know, here come all the politicians wanting to grandstand. And by the way, how many of them actually understand how the Internet works? Right. And how, you know, the Internet could be broken quite easily with, you know, a few simple rule changes. And we're already pretty fragmented globally with respect to different rules that countries have in terms of things that they allow and don't allow. So I don't I don't think that our current I'm glad people are aware of these things, but I I'm not optimistic with where all this is going to go in terms of regulation. Right. Well, let me add to that, too. Uh, I, I had the unique opportunity to, to do a deep dive into research on antitrust for big tech. Uh, it's the topic for this year's national debate tournament uh, for public forum debate, which will be held uh, starting uh, this coming week in, in Dallas, Texas. And I, I co-own a small business that writes debate handbooks. And so I spent uh, 12, 10, 12 hours researching the topic of um, antitrust for big tech. And I am... I find it really interesting right now that, and these are some of today's articles about how the Justice Department says that current legal frameworks are more than sufficient to jump in and pursue antitrust actions against big tech. And by big tech, we're talking about Facebook and uh, Microsoft and Amazon and obviously Google, maybe Apple, depending on how you define it. And it's super interesting to me that I, I think it's a mistake for us to jump into what I feel like is political blustering uh, uh, in the name of antitrust in order uh, to protect consumers when there may be more meaningful routes we can take. For example, I would be really interested in a more enhanced data privacy law before we go in and, and trust bust, you know, big tech where we don't really know the, the implications of those actions. And one of the things I'm extremely concerned about, I have to say, I love that Google internally shares my data with its own apps, right? And the way I know that and the way I appreciate that is that, especially when I travel, you know, if I if I ask what a flight, uh, what time a flight is arriving, I have a ticket for that flight. Google shows me that information in a Google search. When I'm on Google Maps and I'm trying to find my Airbnb, um, and I can't remember the address, all I need to do is go to the city where I'm located at in the general neighborhood. And there'll be a little dot there because it's read my email and it knows that I'm staying at a certain address on a certain date. Uh, and, and can guide me there. And I like that. I like that, that I provided a comprehensive set of services that work well together. I'm not saying that we don't need some regulation. What I'm saying is that I think we need want to be very careful because I, if these tools suddenly break apart into smaller pieces and they, they don't work together to help me, yes, my privacy might be protected ever so slightly more, but I lose the functionality that made the tools desirable in the first place. And so I, I'm all for talking about this, digging through it, uh, uh, debating this in every way, shape, and form, but I am uh, a little concerned about what feels like political grandstanding on behalf of members of, the, of, of our Congress. 
And, and we're seeing lobbyists actually, you know, just you know, ju- jump into the fray here, especially with journalism, and just you know, start to say, hey, you know, we need more money. Uh, Google, right. these companies are just taking too much, so we need to, you know, ramp them down. Um, to your point about the benefits of Google and the integration it offers, I think that was one of the most significant themes of Google I.O., which right. we talked about in the show uh, several weeks ago, and Sundar Pichai and the other representatives that talked at Google I.O. were really, you know, touting that to point out, hey, yes, we do collect information, but we're sharing with you what it is. We're giving you the opportunity to not only see it, but delete it and even have it regularly deleted in some cases, you know, more than ever. But wow, look at all the amazing things you can do uh, with these tools and the ways in which I, I forget what their phrase was, um, but it was basically you know, really smart devices that make your life better. And it was, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something something like that. Um, I just dropped into the show notes uh, for Technology Correction, a political article from June 10th, 2019, that was called Newspapers Embarrassing Lobbying Campaign. And on my Google Home tonight, after I got home from work, I was hearing about some of the Testimony that was provided today on Capitol Hill and legislators that have called together members or representatives of the journalism, you know, community and lobbyists. And there's this bill now that's being proposed, uh, basically to try to give an antitrust exemption, uh, to the newspaper industry to help it fight Google and Facebook. Um, and I think I tend to agree with the author of this editorial, Jack Schaefer, who says the industry doesn't need and shouldn't ask for a special law to help it compete with Google and Facebook. Um, there's a, this is, I think this is a really a lot of whining on the part of the newspaper industry. I mean, this is highly disruptive, right? The fact that we can share links. I got a, a question from, from one of our staff this week. Um, because on, on this website, this comp, this, uh, actually educational organization had some things about, you know, purchasing, uh, copies of their magazine and articles. And they were asking if we, they needed to pay to share this link in an email that was going to go out. And I said, you know, no, this is on the public web. This isn't a, uh, you know, walled garden and password protected. This is a public link. So no, no money should be charged for this and it should be collected. Um, this is highly disruptive that yes, we are clicking all these different links on the public web and we're not, you know, paying every company that is producing this kind of this, this producing journalism. So we've talked on the show and I think we both are certainly advocates for high quality journalism um, and for paying for journalism. I think you support different you know, folks on Patreon, Jason. I've, you know, yep. spent some money on Patreon and, um, you know, I think that micro economy is hopefully going to continue to grow and we're going to see a continued evolution of economic models for how journalism happens, both at a, a national and, you know, we're covering world news and very importantly, local news. Right. And but but these kinds of things don't need a bunch of whiners to show up in Congress and you know, suddenly get, uh, in this case, I guess, a, a big antitrust exemption or, you know, the, the benefit of a big stick, I think, that, that Congress may have to try to, you know, break up all these tech companies and then grandstand over it. However, I will say this. 
I do not think Facebook should have been permitted to purchase Instagram. I do think that was an example of, of antitrust or, you know, what should have been con considered illegal antitrust behavior. I mean, they bought up Instagram because that was their number one competitor and they were going to integrate their features and shut them down and not allow others to enter into the marketplace. There are important, uh, not just conversations, but I think actions and steps to be taken. But I think, you know, Congress needs to tread very carefully here. And we also need to look at the real issues, right? The weaponization of social media and the way in which, um, in, in the eyes of Carol Caldwaller, I say her name right, who, who gave the TED talk here a, a few weeks ago, talking about how uh, the Brexit election was a demonstration of how the, the, the social media platforms have broken liberal democracy as a, as a political model. Um, I mean, those are the big issues that we need to be addressing and facing, not that, you know, hey, gosh, look at how much money traditional journalism has lost in the last 10 years. Well, and I would also add to that that I, I also didn't particularly enjoy reading uh, the, the various characters of testimony that ended up uh, coming out of those hearings, especially since that part of the reason why journalism is having a hard time right now locally, like there's no doubt that, that social media platforms have sucked up all of the advertising oxygen. And, you you know, when, when a newspaper puts something out on Facebook, they may get a lot of engagement from its readers or viewers, but they're getting very little of the advertising dollars. That, that, that come with that. I, I get that part, and we, we've got to figure out a way to, to, to work around that. But I will tell you, this is a real problem in Montana. Um, you know, the local newspapers in Montana are, generally speaking, uh, uh, full of advertisements with very little actual local news. And it's not, it, I, I don't mind reading national news in a local newspaper, even though I have other alternatives. That's fine. But when I'm reading news from other cities that I, that was published three or four days ago, which is a, a problem with, uh, one of the larger chains in Montana, uh, that owns a number of newspapers that, you know, Helena's news on Monday is Missoula's news on Thursday. And local stories aren't being covered, right? We have clear political Political stories that need to be covered that don't end up in newspapers. Uh, we have uh, uh, the crux of local news, which is reporting about school politics and school board elections, just not happening in favor of junky um, clickbait headlines that, uh, you know, the top 10 beards in Montana history sort of stuff. And it's, you know, it's cheap to produce and may get people to click on something and look at your RV ads. But the bottom line is that. It's not the, the local journalism that I grew up trusting as part of my, my, my local newspaper in my hometown. So it's complicated. I get it. But we're not going to be able to easily legislate this away. Here, here's a good connection to the classroom, as we oftentimes want to do and, and make a connection to, to education. I think it's really important that certainly at the high school level and, and maybe even at the, the middle school, junior high level, uh, we are providing opportunities for students to be journalists. You know, I've been involved with story chasers for a long time here in Oklahoma um, to be able to, um, you know, grapple with these kinds of issues, to be able to talk to journalists who are in the field doing reporting, um, but to also be very savvy and aware of of these issues in the world that they're they're living in and they're moving into, because we do have a need to figure out a lot of stuff, and and some of those are you know viable economic models for how high quality local journalism. Uh, can happen and the dynamics that are taking place when these really large media organizations, you know, are gobbling up all of these, you know, small players 
and and perhaps becoming you know more clickbaity and and less inclined to to cover the local city council or school board or, or whatever it was. I'll give a shout out to our uh, local News OK Daily Oklahoman, which oftentimes I think does a poor job of covering education, but they actually have a new reporter that as of this week was live tweeting the Oklahoma City Public Schools um, board meeting. And that was phenomenal. I think that was just so great. I mean, I, as a, a citizen and a taxpayer of, of the school district, you know, got more information and, and had a better window into some of those conversations and things that are happening as a result of that mainstream media coverage. So that was positive. But I will echo what you said, Jason. I don't know that we've got, you know, the 10 beards of uh, of Oklahoma. <laughs> we probably have like noodling or something else if we were doing that uh, here in our state. But we definitely can feel like it's just, you know, crime central um, because, you know, we're a large metropolitan area with a, like a million and a half people or something. And, um, you know, it, it's a typical, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, goodness, why am I even going outside my door? Because, you know, every headline is about, you know, someone being shot or uh, some kind of an accident or, or cop chase or something like that. So got to, got to get beyond that. And we need high quality journalism that gets, gets to real issues. Um, so I will give a shout out too to Brett Dickerson who uh, runs Free Press OKC. That was the group that interviewed me for the uh, digital security and ransomware inspired you know piece a couple of weeks ago. I think Brett does a really good job, but it's also really hard. He almost had to shut the doors of his whole news organization. I think he got some sponsorships to you know be able to continue, but it is a tough thing to be a small fish in a really big ocean and try to you know do do really high quality local journalism today yep absolutely well Wes we are quickly nearing the top of the hour um, are there any quick hit stories you want to cover yet tonight uh, what about your distance learning article um, about the oversight of virtual schools that was one I I didn't see but sure so um, this is from a, a couple of weeks back but I saw this tweeted a couple of times in the last week and I thought it was maybe worthy of a quick discussion so um, I should uh, obviously you know in full disclosure I work for a distance learning program I believe in distance learning models but one of the conversations that becomes very difficult about my particular industry is that not all virtual learning programs are the same and in fact I think virtual learning gets used a lot in schemes to build profits for private industry uh, more than it does uh, 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 provide opportunities for innovation for, for public schools, of which I am a huge fan of public schools. But Chuck B reports on May 2nd that Indiana has signed a new law that is going to push more regulation into uh, uh, virtual schools. And I want to be really clear here that when I say virtual schools, we're not talking about uh, programs like mine, which provides supplemental programs and instruction for students. We're talking about usually charter schools that are run um, more often than not by private companies that have a somewhat notorious reputation for providing subpar instruction and are oftentimes um, not successful uh, in, in providing student services. And there have been numerous examples in states across the United States that have charter school laws and movements to where private corporations have set up shop that provided extraordinary amounts of, of um, 
uh, opportunities for students, but weren't closely monitoring, didn't really seem invested in their success, and um, had a high what the industry calls a churn rate. In other words, uh, the number of kids that leave the program within, you know, X number of semesters. And I think it's really good that Indiana is jumping in and providing more standards uh, for private programs that work in that context. Um, I strongly believe that students should have access to options. I think that's an important piece, but I think those options should be provided in an accountable public school realm, and um, uh, that's where the money needs to stay for those programs. And I get that that is a somewhat controversial statement um, in, in 2019, and we tend to stay away from politics here, but I do think that it is a good sign that states that have previously really not provided a lot of, of oversight or standards for full-time distance learning programs run in, in um, uh, uh, run by private companies are, are, are now starting to create rules that, that can help guide what, what success should look like there. Sounds good. Um, I think that's probably probably good. We have a few few other articles, but we are getting close to the top of the hour. So if you're wondering what we didn't cover, you can always just go to edtechsr.com slash links, and there are a few more that we just didn't have time to talk about. So shall we, shall we geek of the week it? Sure, let's do it. Um, I'll jump in with a quick one. Um, I've been really interested in e-ink displays. Um, actually, it's, it's been a, a several-year passion of mine. Um, e-ink displays is what powers the Kindle e-book reader. It's a black-and-white display that uses very little battery um, that provides uh, an increasingly more contrast-based view on things, so it's easier and easier to read the screens as time goes on and, and the technology develops. And I, as it turns out, I'm very interested in two different possible devices. I think an e-ink tablet run by Android is an extremely interesting prospect to me, and I think an e-ink phone is an extremely interesting prospect to me because the devices themselves can provide access to text and um, you know low-movement uh, uh, apps, uh, for example, uh, an e-book reader or perhaps a music app, but uh, tend to stay away from the more maybe engaging good or bad video and, and other kind of game-like apps. And um, I've been reading the Good E-Reader blog, which is uh, goodereader.com uh, slash blog, which is kind of my way to keep an eye on the marketplace of, of e-ink tablets. Um, I have not purchased one of these devices at, to this point. I will tell you that I did back an Indiegogo project uh, a week or so back for an e-ink phone that's supposed to be released later this year. Year, but I backed out of it this week when I more carefully read the description, and it's Android-based, but doesn't run the Google Play Store, which means that you'd have to rely on sideloading or sketchy apps. But I think an e-ink phone that had all the functionality of a phone, but had an e-ink display, not only would be great for battery life, I think it might be a way to help battle digital distraction. And so um, the good e-reader... Uh, blog is awesome. Goodereader.com slash blog. Awesome. And on the topic of avoiding uh, digital distraction, I will share uh, two. Uh, one, one, one of my geeks of the week is not very tin. Uh, what is it called uh, when you wear a tinfoil hat? The other one is. But um, the first one that's not that links to that is a, is a book that I've started to listen to. I actually purchased this when I was a member of Audible. 
uh, monthly subscriber a few years ago. It's by Cal Newport, and it's a book called Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. And my friend Eric Ebert, who I uh, work with, and he's the chair of our computer science department, had recommended this as one of the best books that he has read in a number of years. Um, Newport is also the, the author of a book called Digital Minimalism, Choosing Fo a Focused Life in a Noisy World. And what he's basically saying so far in deep work is that knowledge workers and just all of us, because of the distracted and distractible nature of, of not only social media, but email and just our lives really have a hard time, you know, having a flow experience, getting into a mode where we can think uh, very deeply and not be interrupted. And that in order to do our best cognitive work, uh, we really need to uh, make sure that we can isolate and separate ourselves away from these distractions, you know, and, and it feeds into uh, dopamine or whatever the, you know, blasts of, uh, of uh, you know, chemicals and things that our brain likes to get. Um, and so we need to, you know, find ourselves in situations where we're bored and where we're, you know, just thinking. And he's really making a case for, I think, um, and you know, being countercultural when it comes to the natural inclination of most people with their with their smartphones and with screens to you know get these quick hits of distraction versus having you know long sustained periods of focused work. And I feel myself incriminated because I have not <laughs> reading you know long books, and that's one of my big right. goals for the summer is to read several long form books. And it seems silly for me to say that having a doctorate and, and all the educational background that I have, but. Anyway, that's uh, one of the books I'm reading right now. And then <laughs> something that will perhaps make you convinced that, you know, Wes does wear a tinfoil hat around his house all the time. <laughs> if you have not read some of the recent articles, including one in the New York Times, the U.S. Navy has recently changed its reporting policy for UFOs. And there is a fantastic podcast I've listened to for a couple of years. It's called War College, and it talks a lot about different military topics and issues. And so uh, the link that I've got here in the show notes is to a recent episode where they were interviewing uh, one of uh, uh, an expert on military policy. And his, uh, his Twitter handle is um, Aviation Intel or Aviation underscore Intel. It's Tyler Rogueway. And uh, what he's basically saying is, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, the U.S. Navy, as well as the Air Force and other military branches, have deployed some incredibly advanced radar and imaging systems um, that when a carrier group, you know, deploys out to sea, they're able to see far more than they ever could before. And they're able to record things with very high fidelity and resolution, not only in the visible spectrum, but also in other, uh, you know, wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum. And so what we've uh, had reported in, in several different Navy pilots and commanders, you know, are, are now on the record for saying they've seen these things or this, these tic-tac-shaped aircraft uh, that basically defy the laws of, uh, of, of physics as we know them, Newtonian laws of movement. Um, certainly things that if a human being was inside, they would not be able to survive the kinds of rapid acceleration and deceleration and changes in altitude. So they don't say, hey, you know, UFOs are here, it's Independence Day. Uh, what this guy says is that this is either one, something that's in the U.S. inventory. You know, we literally shovel billions of dollars of, of uh, funding into our black budgets and we have for years. Uh, it could be something in an adversary or a foreign government's inventory, you know, or it could be uh, extraplanetary. It could not be from from our planet. So I think that is a pretty intriguing thing. And I am happy to see the U.S. Navy officially changing their policy so that folks are not just laughing all of this off because, 
look, folks, we are we are in a big universe. If you haven't noticed, uh, it's a really, really big universe. And I kind of think it's the height of ethnocentrism for us to try to imagine that we would be the possible only, you know, intelligent beings in this vast universe. I think that's pretty intriguing. And there's an interesting link to technology. So, yes, sometimes I do have my tinfoil hat on <laughs> and I will end my rant there. And I'll say one other thing about the earlier topic regarding uh, thinking about the concepts of distraction. Um, I, I'm going to be giving uh, one of my um, uh, uh, most popular presentations, which is about digital distraction and, and, and battling in the classroom. And I'm starting to research latest pieces of it. And please know it's an ongoing debate, right? Like that we have not decided yet um, what what's most appropriate here, if there are limits, uh, if the distraction is good or bad, whether or not you can actually battle a distraction with certain personal habits. So know that, know that that's an ongoing debate. So please know that that is not decided. There you go. All right. Okay, Wes, where can people find you on the larger internet? I can generally be found on Twitter at WFryer. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I will periodically post some things and I anticipate doing some hopefully deep work this summer, doing some writing, doing some publishing, and those will be the places where I will be sharing what I am up to. How about you, Dr. Neifer? I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. I blog at the Tech Savvy Teacher blog at ncc, ncc, uh, blog.ncc.org. And uh, you are likely to find some future work of mine at uh, the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance uh, website. You can follow them on Twitter at VLLA Online, um, where you can find out more about, about people doing great work in distance learning. Sounds good. Well, normally when we are here, our cameras do work. We're glad that uh, actually Jason was able to join with audio. Uh, you can certainly download some low um, uh, megabyte, some, some small uh, audio versions, <laughs> uh, 32 kilobit to be exact, versions of our podcast at edtechsr.com. Hopefully you can find us where finer podcasts are curated. I have been having difficulty the last couple weeks getting our Google Home to actually play our podcast. And after numerous back and forth direct messages with the now Google Nest folks, apparently it has to do with the Google Assistant misspelling the word EdTech and spelling it with as two words, E-D space tech. And so we're still trying to, to get that figured out bizarro because that worked for me for weeks. So um, Jason, have you tested that lately? Can you still use the Google Assistant or uh, the fine uh, Madam A to to play our podcast? I know you can do it with Madam A. So no. I, it, it's, it's funny because I was going to test that and I forgot to, but I'll write them down to do that. Okay, that'll be good. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and wish everyone a great week and to stay savvy and stay safe.